Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Donald Gray Barnhouse. He pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania from 1927 until his death in 1960. An evangelist of incredible intellect, extraordinary language skills, and a true expositor of the scriptures. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a study of Luke, chapters 13 and 14. The 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The Lord has been speaking to his disciples, giving them exhortations to watchfulness. And now we continue, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? In other words, if catastrophe comes to any man, does that mean, says Christ, that it's because he's worse than other men? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. Now, it's just as though I may, might say, do you think that the 20 people that were killed in the hurricane were worse than the people that weren't? Well, of course not. God sends his hurricanes and he doesn't kill bad people necessarily in the hurricanes. The Lord says, don't think because you live in the midst of the world that has disaster that the disaster has any relationship to an individual's sins. The idea that people suffer in this world because of their sins is a superstitious idea. It is not biblical. It purely, purely comes out of the superstition of men that say, oh, if a man does bad, God has to hit him right away. No, says God. Many people that are the worst sinners will be the most prosperous. Crime very frequently pays. If you don't believe it, go to Miami Beach and look at them. The gangsters of the United States gathered there. Many of them, the head gangsters of many and many a place in the United States, each one owns his own big hotel along the front there. Crime pays. No, says God, things happen in the world, but what happens in the world is totally unrelated to any individual sins. Judgment will come later. Then it is that God will sort things out. No, says God, do you think that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? No, he said, but don't forget this, that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The judgment is going to reach all men someday, unless men have been covered by the death of Jesus Christ. The judgment that now comes individually upon a few men, a spiritual judgment will sweep them away forever. Jesus spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Now this is taken from the book of Isaiah. The fig tree, of course, was the Jewish nation. 
and he was the Lord. The Lord came to the Jews, and he expected to find fruit, but what he found was a big crop of leaves. Then said he to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years, and Jesus was three years in this world, these three years I come seeking fruit of this fig tree, the Jews, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it cumber the ground? And he answering said to him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig it about and dung it. And if it bear fruit, then well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And the Lord was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now we know, of course, that what happened was from the rest of the scripture that Israel went on rejecting him and that he set Israel aside. And that today God is working not in accordance with race or nation, but to the whole world whosoever will may come. And yet the day will come when he will bring back Israel and fulfill his purposes. Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. She was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, Isn't it strange that there should be men here, religious men? This was the man in charge of the religion of that town. And yet he was wildly jealous because here was someone who exercised power greater than himself. And he was indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to water? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, when it says the adversaries were ashamed, it does not mean they were ashamed with a shame that said, Oh, Lord, what fools we are, we understand, certainly. They were ashamed with hatred that they had been confused in front of the people. And in Matthew, it says they went away and had a committee meeting and said, How can we get rid of this fellow? Then said Jesus, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It's like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Now, that's abnormal. This is an announcement of church history. Nineteen hundred years ago, the Lord said, the growth of Christianity in the midst of the world is going to be an abnormal thing. It's, suppose we put it this way, that you have a pet cat at home. It was a pet cat when you left, but you come to church, and when you go home, you find that it's a tiger clawing at the inside of your door. Well, it's not normal for cats to turn into tigers while their owners have come down to church. Or that you have a rose bush in your yard. It was a rose bush when you left, and when you come home, it's a California redwood tree a couple of hundred feet tall. It's not normal. Now, said the Lord, I, I start the church, and I have 12 disciples and seven deacons and ordained elders in every place. My church will be a simple little thing. And then suddenly we turn around and we find men in robes. Well, says the Lord, that's not normal. That the little thing that I should have planted in this world should become a monstrosity. Now, he says, that's what's going to happen. 
And again, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like unto sourdough, rottenness, that which causes corruption when you put it in the meal, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Someone says, but can a bad thing illustrate a good thing? Certainly. He's talking about the progress of development through the centuries. Now, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, like yeast. But don't say that it's merely like yeast and stuff there. Rather, understand that what he is saying, that the kingdom of heaven is like this process. We could put it around the other way. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took the yeast and hid it in three measures of meal, the Eastern Church, the Roman Church, and Protestantism, for Christendom is divided up into three measures of meal, the wheat of the world, the wheat of God's kingdom is divided in three major parts, and the whole is yeasted, corrupt. And when he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, then said one to him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said to them, you strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. You know, there are times when people say to the preachers, you're narrow. You have to be narrow enough to get in. Some of you may remember the story I told maybe 10 or 12 years ago. First time I ever came east from my home in California when I was just a student, I was very eager to see a big league baseball game. I'd never seen one, but of course, like all boys in the far west, I'd heard about them. And shortly after I had come, uh, within a month, while the World Series was being played here in Philadelphia, the A's were world's champions at that time. And I, I went, came down and saw a ball game, first in my life. And I went on back to Princeton. And the next day I got the newspapers to read every word I could about the game I'd seen. And lo and behold, here was the story of a fat man who had got stuck in the turnstiles and they couldn't get him unscrewed till the seventh inning. And, and there he was until the workers could come and tell him apart. I learned a great theological lesson that you have to be narrow enough to get through. So whenever anybody tries to tell you that you want to be broad-minded, you want to be very careful that Christ has said that it's a narrow gate that goes his way. When once the master of the house is risen up, Strive to enter in at the straight, the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. They've been too broad-minded while they're here on earth. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say to you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall he begin to say, But we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, all you workers of religious iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are the last which shall be first and the first which shall be last. In other words, don't think that heaven is going to be made up primarily of the people that made the biggest noise here on earth, even of the preachers that made the biggest noise. They may be the last. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill you. 
And Jesus said, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected, crucified. Isn't that a terrific statement? I shall be perfected. I'll go to the cross and die. They didn't know what he meant, but he did. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Here's the great mystery of man's will turned against God. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say to you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The 14th chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. The Lord now continues his ministry as it is recorded in Luke. It came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Now, they weren't looking at him. They were laying traps for him. They wanted to find out if they could catch him in a breach of their Jewish tradition, which was now alien from the word of God. Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy, and Jesus answering spake to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And uh, they held their peace. That's a terrible silence. They would not answer. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Because they had little by little in their religion of human righteousness had come to the place where they were saying that it was an act of healing was work and that a person shouldn't work on the Jewish Sabbath. Thank God Christ delivered us from Sabbatarianism. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. I possibly should interject the story of the old Quaker though. The old Quaker lived near a man who was always working on the Lord's day and took no account whatsoever of any day of rest. And when the Quaker chided him gently, he said, Now, wait a minute, friend. He said, Doesn't your Bible say if a man have an ass that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day that he should take him out? Yes, said the Quaker, but if the man has the same ass fall into the same pit every Sabbath day, I'd either kill the ass or fill up the pit. <laughs> In other words, very definitely, it is possible for a man to build a system of excuses and then go ahead and do his own will instead of God's will. And that's exactly what these men had done. And Jesus put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose the chief places. That is, they wanted to come and sit at the speaker's table, saying unto them, 
When you're bidden of any man to a wedding, do not sit down in the highest room. That is, don't go up and sit at the table with the bride and groom, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come say to thee, uh, give this man place, and thou begin with shame to go down and take a seat farther away. But when you're invited, you go and sit down in a low place, and then when he that invited thee comes, he may say to thee, friend, go up higher. And then thou shalt have worthship. This is a bad word, worship, to use in connection with a man. It's the old King James. This is one of the reasons why we so definitely need modern revisions and translations. Worship, you see, is merely a fast way of saying worthship, the acknowledgement of worth. And it is used religiously, of course, of God only who alone has true worth. And yet we do acknowledge that certain men have, by the efforts of their being and force, have achieved for themselves places in political life, in industry, and so on, and they have worth. God definitely says we are to give custom to whom custom is due, honor to whom honor is due, and so on. And you shall have Worship the acknowledgement of your worth in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that invited him, When you are inviting at making a dinner or a supper, don't invite only your friends or your brethren or your relatives or your rich neighbors, because all they'll do is say, Well, after all, they invited us, and we owe them a dinner, and we've got to make a dinner, and we invite back those that invite us. How do you make up your Christmas card list, in other words? <laughs> That's very interesting. You only send to those that send to you, and if someone doesn't send to you, you cut them off their list, and you give a present to those that gave to you. And the Lord said, don't do this. When you have a Thanksgiving dinner, invite a foreign student who will never be able to invite you back, and so on. When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. I wonder how many people here ever obeyed that command of Christ once in their lives. For thou, they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said, Well, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It was said in that tone of voice, you see, one of these men, and that Jesus immediately said to him, look, a certain man made a great supper and he invited a whole guest list. Now, I'm not reading any other translation. I'm paraphrasing this right from the King James Version as we go along so that you can see it and get the heart and thought of what's really here. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to all the invited list, come, everything's ready. Today we'd say, picked up the phone and said, didn't you remember that this is the night you're supposed to be here at dinner? And they all with one consent began to make an excuse. The first said to him, I, 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 I've bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. Uh, will, will you please excuse me? And another said, well, I, 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 I bought five yoke of oxen and I, I must go to prove them. Uh, will, you, will you have me excused, please? And another said, um, uh, well, you know, I, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. As McLaren said, as though the ground would run away, as though the oxen would have died, or as though he couldn't have brought his wife with him. So that servant came, and he told his lord all these things, and then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, 
Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and there's still place. The Lord said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men which were invited shall taste of my supper. Now you see this is in connection with this back in verse 15 when the man piously said, Well, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And the Lord said, Well, now wait a minute. You Pharisees, you think you have a patent and a copyright on God. You think that because you've grown up in the shadow of religion, you have it coming to you, and what you're really doing is you're giving excuses and not obeying, and you're not living a Christian life, and you're a form and ceremony, and are you truly born again? Tears in the midst of wheat, he said, because I have invited men to come, and they make excuses. Well, he said, they shall be excluded if they have a form of godliness and not deny the power thereof. And he said, I'll go out and I'll save the riffraff and I'll take them to heaven and forever and ever they, what Paul says, we are as the scum and offscouring of the earth. But God says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. For he is not going to give his salvation to those that have the pretense and the form of God, but deny the power thereof. There went great multitudes with him and Jesus turned and said to them, if any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now here's another reason for a modern translation. The word hate to us today has a meaning of vicious enmity. But the Greek word that's used here means merely act in a way that puts first things first and puts family relationships on a lower plane than spiritual relationships. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now our cross is Christ's cross. There is no other cross. Don't ever be guilty of the phrase of saying, oh, poor Mrs. So-and-so has such a cross, her son is in the penitentiary. That's not a cross. That's a very great unfortunate thing. And according to the Bible, stems from bad training at home because train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And somebody else says, oh, poor Mr. So-and-so, his wife is a hopeless invalid. He has such a cross. That's not a cross. These are the common sufferings that are the lot of mankind. The cross that you're to take is the cross of Christ. You're to go to stand with him and take your place so that you're crucified of the world, and thus it is that you follow Christ. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he's laid the foundation he's not able to finish, and all those that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down and consult whether he be able with ten thousand men to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath. Now, this does not mean that you are to go out and sell your house and your automobile and everything else and, and stand in a breadline, give away your money. It doesn't mean that at all. But you forsake it in the New Testament sense of putting it in its proper place not counting as at anything, 
using it but not abusing. In fact, in Timothy, God says to the rich, I say, trust not in uncertain riches, but in God who hath given us richly all things to enjoy. For God undoubtedly shows in the scripture that he desires certain men to become stewards of larger amounts for him and to administer them for him. But there's no doubt also that a man can possess wealth and yet have forsaken it in the mind in, in between himself and God. A man who holds on to it and wants to have total control and, and who really down in his heart loves possessions, that man of course needs to be reached by the Spirit of God. But a man who may have possessions says, Lord God, it wouldn't make any difference to me if that investment faded out and there was nothing left, if something, did, fire gutted this building and the assurance wasn't sufficient to take it, if whatever it is, it's all right, Lord. Possessions don't mean primarily a thing to me. Then the man has forsaken and is living with God and God may very frequently give such a man more possessions than he had before. But there will always be between him and God the knowledge that things are not held for any intrinsic value in them. Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost its savor, its flavor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? Now this goes back, of course, to what he had said to them, ye are the salt of the earth. And it's a good word on our missionary Sunday when all of us must come face to face with our own obligations to take out the word to remember the story of the Chinese girl in Berkeley, California in the Bible class when they were all discussing together the various properties of salt in the Bible discussion group. Salt was for flavors, salt preserves, and so on. And she said, salt makes you thirsty. Well, ye are the salt of the earth. How many people do you make really thirsty for Christ? When people see you, do they say, I wish I had what she has. I wish I had what he has in Christ. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. May God bless to us this reading. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.